During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a podcast I think you should be checking out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, and you'll even get to hear a clip of the show. So keep an ear out mid-episode when I tell you all about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at our departure from Afghanistan, how the decisions were made to leave in this fashion, and what we should do going forward to prevent similar foreign escapades in the future. Clips today are from The Intercept, Counterspin, The Brian Lehrer Show, Fresh Air, Uneffing the Republic, Democracy Now!, and The Majority Report. It's about 1am on the 17th of August, 36 hours since the Taliban took control of the Afghan capital, Kabul, in a surprisingly peaceful transition of power with the Afghan government led by Ashraf Ghani. That's Andrew Quilty, a photographer and writer based in Kabul. The remaining 15 or so provincial capitals fell to the Taliban in a matter of days, bringing the then insurgent group to the gates of Kabul late on the night of the 14th of August. It was a sleepless night that night for Kabul's residents who were anticipating the next day to begin violently. It was only a hastily cobbled together agreement between the the government and the Taliban that would see a peaceful transition of power. In just a short time, we saw the Taliban take over Afghanistan. The Taliban seizing back power nearly two decades after 9-11, taking over the capital of Kabul in just a matter of days. The Afghan president has fled the country and U.S. troops have taken control of the city's airport, where thousands of Afghans are also desperate to leave the country. U.S. and U.K. troops are engaged in evacuating their citizens while the international community tries to define its response to the Taliban's lightning speed victory. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. When the agreement was made that would see the the government fold, most of the Afghan security forces shed their uniforms and left their posts Across the city, former members of the Afghan National Army and the National Police could be seen walking from military infrastructure around the city, carrying sacks of belongings. And within a matter of hours, a security vacuum developed in the city. Looting began. Thieves dressed up to look like Taliban robbed people in the street. And within the matter of another few hours... The Taliban made a hasty decision to send their fighters into the city to fill the vacuum left by the retreating, disappearing Afghan security forces. We'll be hearing more from Andrew in a few minutes. The two-decade-long U.S. war in Afghanistan has come to a conclusion, with the U.S. having suffered what appears to be a stunning defeat. After spending over a trillion dollars and fighting a war that resulted in thousands of U.S. casualties and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Afghans, the U.S. is leaving the country with the Taliban firmly in power. Vanessa Ghazari, national security editor for The Intercept, has spent years reporting in Afghanistan after the U.S. launched the war. Vanessa shared her reflections with us on the U.S. government's longest war and what the recent developments mean for Afghanistan. One thing I've been struck by watching what's happening now is that the videos we're seeing now come out of Afghanistan of men with RPGs on the streets of major cities and the streets empty and gunfire ricocheting around. And refugees in Kabul, in parks where... A lot of us spent time picnicking or with friends. I'm just struck by how much it looks the way it did 20 years ago when the U.S. first got involved in the war. It's really striking and surreal how 20 years of our engagement there seems to just have been erased in a few days. But you also have to remember that 
tens of thousands of people have lost their children, husbands, brothers, mothers, fathers, sisters to this war, Afghans, Americans, Europeans, and many others. In Afghanistan alone, according to the Cost of War Project at Brown, the total dead since October 2001 are 157,000, of whom the vast majority are Afghan civilians, security forces, and opposition fighters. And for all those people and many others who have been there in this period, these years won't be erased ever. They'll never forget what happened in this period. And while our war may be ending, maybe, the war is not ending for Afghans, and it's probably going to continue for a long time. For a generation of Afghans and Americans, this war was a very strange beast. It was a tapestry of cultural marvels, dark stories, death, destruction, beauty, suffering, friendship, regret, guilt, and official lies. The biggest lie has been about America, about what this country is in the world, and about what we can and cannot do as the world's sole superpower. American exceptionalism has now been shown in so many ways to be a bankrupt concept. We are not strong. We are not capable. We are not principled. And so I'm thinking a lot right now about the possibilities for moral recovery as a nation, given the last 20 years of our history and what we're seeing now in Afghanistan. It's very important that we recognize the significance of pulling out U.S. troops and the limitations of pulling out U.S. troops. The significance is that this was a war that never should have been waged. The horrific crimes of 9-11 should have been dealt with as international horrific crimes and not as the beginning of a global war in which the U.S. interests would be asserted as taking precedence over the interests of every other country, every other people in the world. And once it started, it should have ended. Once it was going for a year, it should have ended. Once it went for 10 years, it should have ended. It's finally ending now, almost 20 years on. That's way too late, but it's important that it is ending the U.S. role. The limitation of that is that this does not end the struggle and potentially even war in Afghanistan. The war is going to be very different without the United States. But people in Afghanistan have a very difficult time ahead. Certainly the people who are afraid of what Taliban control could mean for them and their families personally because of either their real or perceived connections to the U.S. military, to U.S. intelligence, and to other perceived and accurately known as Western institutions, whether it's journalists, whether it's non-governmental organizations, all kinds of people, women who fought for women's rights over these last 20 years, many of them are very afraid of being linked to the U.S. occupation and targeted for that, as well as being targeted for being strong women with an independent streak at all. So there's a lot of problems ahead for Afghans. Pulling out the U.S. troops, I think, was the most important part of it. Well, it's been odd to see some in the U.S. news media lay the entire state of affairs at Biden's feet, as though everything was going great somehow until he mucked it up. But you explain in The Nation that there are things that we can and should be demanding of the U.S. government now. We can't undo what the U.S. military did to the Afghan people. But there are things that we can be talking about right now in terms of accountability. Absolutely. And I think accountability to the people of Afghanistan should remain our focal point for this next period. First, the number of refugees, asylum seekers, should be massively expanded. We have to expand the categories of people who are allowed in. And crucially, we have to make it easier, make it possible for people to apply for and get that protection. 
it's a huge challenge now because people that are not already in Kabul may not be able to get to Kabul anytime soon. People in Kabul may have trouble getting to the airport. But it's also made harder because the United States, unlike every other country, is not simply opening their borders to people who clearly need protection. They're demanding that people still fill out all kinds of paperwork that may not be possible right now. Mm. So we need to demand that they make it easier, that they make it possible for people to apply for asylum, for refugee status, for protection in any way that it becomes necessary. Second, we need to be sure that the bombing raids, both of planes, including B-52s, and drones that have been carried out in recent weeks have stopped and that the end of those bombing raids is permanent. The same for the CIA squads that are running death squads throughout Afghanistan. That should be permanently ended, not just at this moment ready to come back from over the horizon. Third, we need to be supporting UN and whatever other international efforts emerge to create and defend a humanitarian corridor guaranteeing safe passage for humanitarian workers to get people in and to get access to water, food, shelter, medicine for people that are living now in Kabul and other places who have been displaced from their homes, can't get to their homes, and are stuck wherever they are in desperate need. That has to include funding a massive program for COVID assistance. We've all seen the the videos, the photographs of people crowded together, living on streets in Kabul, etc. And these people are smack in the middle of a rising number of COVID cases already, this could become another disaster facing people in Afghanistan. And finally, finally, Janine, I think it's so crucial that even though it will be a long process to assess what was wrong about this war from the beginning, why it was so easy for people to support this war, and why people in positions of power consistently supported it with so few exceptions, like that of the heroic congressional representative from California, Barbara Lee, who was the only member of Congress to vote against the authorization for this war. That's going to be a long process, but in the meantime, we need to begin the process of acknowledging U.S. responsibility for the impact of the war, the devastation that the war brought to the people of Afghanistan. We can work on that for years, the issues of reparations and compensation, questions of apology, but right now we need to move towards acknowledgement that there was a U.S. responsibility for what faced the people of Afghanistan during these 20 years. Well, let me just ask you, finally, media have a lot to account for, I think, here. News media just have a war frame of mind, if you put it that way. Diplomacy, it seems, is almost treated as a weakness. And so that's exactly the kind of conversation we need to be having. But I fear that folks are going to be poorly served if we're looking for that kind of healthy conversation about the future for the Afghan people in mainstream news media. I think you're right that the news media, the mainstream news media needs to have some serious conversations, and we in the public need to demand those answers for the role that the media played for 20 years. From the moment of the 9-11 attacks, assuming the legitimacy of war as an answer, I do have a small hint of optimism based on the coverage of the last few days, because there has already started to be some looking back. There's been a couple of articles, not a lot, but you do see hints in the Washington Post and the New York Times and on NPR. Not enough, not nearly enough, but the beginnings of a more self-critical look, not necessarily at the media itself, but at the assumptions that were at the root of how the media covered all this, which comes back to the question of the legitimacy of war as the dominant component of how U.S. influence around the world is expressed. And to the degree that we can force that conversation to go further, that will be one of the key things to prevent something like this horrific invasion, occupation, 20-year oppression of Afghanistan that our country was involved with from ever happening again.
Now, the roots of this crisis go back to the Trump administration's negotiations with the Taliban that left out the Afghanistan government. You know, the analysis has been that that signaled to the army that they were being abandoned by the U.S., and that's what led to the collapse two weeks ago. How m- might have Biden dealt with these, this hand of cards that he inherited from Trump differently? So, of course, that's true. And every president decries the mess that the previous president left for him to deal with. Although on this issue, President Trump and President Biden had the same view, same fundamental view, that it was time for this war of 20 years to end. With the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, we don't have a lot of hindsight now, and there's going to be a lot of examination of what went wrong in these last few weeks. But with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, the idea set that President Biden said an August 31st, first uh, September 11th, and then an August 31st deadline withdrawal, Lots of questions about that. And just yesterday, the president said that might be extended, although the Taliban have said they will not, that they have pushed back against the idea that they are willing to see American forces there past that August 31st deadline. Clearly, we should have begun evacuation efforts earlier and with more vigor than we did. Because there is, I think, whatever your views on the war in Afghanistan and whether it was worth it, there is an almost united American view that we have an obligation to those who served us as translators and in other war, other roles during this war. And I, we see this, this mob at the Kabul airport and worry about the cost that those people are going to be paying. The response in the uh, the Sunday news shows from the Biden administration yesterday to this particular criticism of not getting enough people out before they pulled out the military. The administration officials, including Jake Sullivan, made the case that they got a lot of people out and that they couldn't have foreseen just how swiftly the Taliban, and we've heard this a lot over the last couple of weeks, how swiftly the Taliban would take control. It's hard It's hard to believe that though, right? Because how do they not have CIA intelligence telling them what the Taliban is up to in the weeks before this happens and the fact that they're sweeping through and getting meeting with tribal leaders and forcing people involved in the military to commit to laying down their arms and melting away as what then transpired. What has there been any analysis of what why this misstep occurred? It was either a failure of intelligence or a failure to heed intelligence. And those are two different things. The president and some of his top aides have said it was a surprise that Afghanistan basically fell in 11 days. And that is a kind of speedy collapse that is catastrophic and surely surprising. But the idea that we didn't have much time, that just fits the common sense test of what was going to happen in Afghanistan once U.S. forces withdrew. And one of the tough questions that Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, had to face yesterday in the appearance he did on Fox News Sunday was his handling of a memo through what they call the dissent channel from some U.S. diplomats in the region warning that they were sitting on the edge of a catastrophe. And Secretary Blinken acknowledged that he had seen that memo and responded to it in this uh, these internal State Department channels, but it took a while for the U.S. policy to catch up with that warning. You mentioned the Sunday shows. Republicans were having a field day yesterday with these missteps. Uh, On Face the Nation, Nikki Haley defended the deal Trump made with the Taliban, but then blamed Biden for pulling out. Some Republicans have accused Biden of negotiating with terrorists because the State Department is communicating with the Taliban about evacuation efforts in Kabul. But Nikki Haley took a different tack. They're not negotiating with the Taliban. They've completely surrendered to the Taliban. They surrendered Bagram Air Force Base, which was a major NATO hub. They surrendered $85 billion worth of equipment and weapons that we should have gotten out of there. They have surrendered the American people and actually withdrew our troops before they withdrew the American people. And they've abandoned our Afghan allies who kept people like my husband safe while they were overseas deploying. So, no, there was no negotiating. This was a complete and total surrender and, and an embarrassing failure. 
So what do you think, Susan? Is that a fair criticism? Let's remember that Nikki Haley was UN ambassador for President Trump. It was President Trump who not only negotiated with the Taliban, but was prepared to invite Taliban leaders to Camp David, a huge global prize to get an invitation like that, and not have the Taliban government along for those negotiations. Now, that ended up not happening, but not because President Trump didn't want it to happen. One of the things that I think drives Americans crazy about politics is when they see positions taken, when they see people, politicians flip positions based on who's making the argument. So even Republicans who defended President Trump's willingness to negotiate with the Taliban now criticize President Biden's attempts to do the same. And Democrats do this too. But at the moment, it's Republicans who often seem to have very short memories about the positions they were taking a year ago. Yes, I find it quite annoying. Now, to this point about surrendering $85 billion worth of equipment and weapons, there's also been a lot of different numbers thrown around about how many Afghans and or US citizens are still in the country. Do you have any, can you clarify any of that in terms of what the situation is on the ground? I can't, I cannot. I think the situation is pretty murky. In some ways, murky because the situation is chaotic, in some ways, perhaps murky for strategic reasons to not put Americans who may still be trapped somewhere other than the airport as we meant, as we try to evacuate them. And that goes also for Afghan allies. The latest number I've heard is that 37,000 people have been evacuated in evacuations facilitated by the United States. That is a lot of people, but we know there are at least some people who are still there and still in harm's way. And it's going to take a while for this situation to sort itself out. And the situation gets much more difficult after August 31st, which is the deadline that we have set for us to be out of there. At that point, what is, at that, it just, it complicates our mission when we said we were going to leave. This is one reason that diplomats and strategists sometimes urge politicians not to set deadlines because those dates come up and you don't know quite what your situation is going to be there. So this is going to be a very perilous situation for at least the next couple weeks. Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention. And unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. After 18 months of talks and nearly two decades of war, the US and the Afghan Taliban have just signed a long-awaited deal aimed at paving the way to peace and the departure of foreign troops. Just as any worthy journey begins, it is a first step. And we know exactly who we're dealing with. If the Taliban do not uphold their commitments, President Trump and his team will not hesitate to do what we must do to protect American lives. The United States has been really appalling in how it's handled uh, the negotiation with the Taliban. I think the agreement that was crafted under the Trump administration was not a good one. The United States negotiated, uh, put those in air quotes, uh, an agreement under Donald Trump that seemed to basically be be centered on the fact that the United States did not want to be in Afghanistan anymore, which is not really the greatest way to negotiate your exit. So if if you know if you're broadcasting that you want to leave and the Taliban know that you want to leave and you're just looking for a way out, then you're going to take an agreement that is not going to be a good one for 
most of the Afghans who are still living in this country, I think, or the chances are much greater that you're going to do that. That is what happened with the agreement. Then Biden inherited this agreement. And I think Biden just wants to pull off the Band-Aid. Honestly, I think Biden has not wanted to be in Afghanistan for a very long time. That's why I opposed the surge when it was proposed in 2009 when I was vice president. And that's why as president, I'm adamant we focus on the threats we face today in 2021, not yesterday's threats. There are no good options at this point in terms of policy there. So anybody who thinks that there's really a great way to leave, I don't think so. I don't think there have been good options for us in Afghanistan since the very early, you know, days and years after the war. So, you know, we're left with this. You know, the Afghan people are are very tough, but they're also exhausted. This has been an extremely difficult period in one way or another for almost everyone in Afghanistan. And even the people who have benefited the most in this period have lived with a level of fear and anxiety. I can't be very optimistic about how this is going to feel to people. I saw a story in the Times um, in a picture of a car full of children evacuating their homes in one of the big cities in northern Afghanistan that was taken by the Taliban. And you just look in the eyes of these children and they're terrified. And, you know, anybody can think about what it would be like to have to pick up your kids. You know, we've read a lot about how much the rights and opportunities of women changed in the last 20 years. Women began getting educations, including, you know, advanced educations, starting businesses, serving in parliament. And I'm wondering to what extent, this may be hard to answer or measure, that these new roles, responsibilities, and contributions change the thinking of the men in their lives, including men in very religious families. Well, I think the history of women in Afghanistan is a rich and complex one, even before the U.S. intervention in 2001. Um, and uh, they, you know, have had powerful roles in both urban and rural Afghan society going back, uh, you know, some time. The Soviet intervention was based also on an ideology of women's uh, place in the in the workforce. And so in cities, uh, if you visited Afghanistan during the 80s, uh, the ministries, there were thousands of uh, women in Kabul getting on the bus each morning and going to work and earning independent salaries. So this dynamic has been a part of Afghanistan throughout the 20th century. If you look back at the photographs of Afghanistan when it was at peace with itself and its neighbors and still a poor country but a modernizing society in the 1960s, you'll see photographs of laboratories uh, funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to promote farming in southern Afghanistan, where there are women in lab coats working alongside men. So this is a history that predates the American involvement. But what happened after 2001 was that uh, the the U.S., uh, Europe, and um, other industrialized economies um, uh, invested uh, enormously in uh, NGOs and in a new government that had a mandate to include women um, to a degree that the Taliban had, um, you know, not only never um, permitted, but had never, but actively had suppressed. And so across the board, women had new opportunities in Afghanistan cities after 2001. They could enter higher education, obtain university educations, they could enter the media, they were broadcasters, they were reporters on the street, they formed their own NGOs, they won scholarships to go abroad to further their education. So it was a new world. Uh, there was a generation that grew up in Afghanistan cities, protected by NATO security, the likes of which Afghanistan has never known. They all had cell phones. They were all on the web. They were all on Facebook. Um, they 
became creatures of global culture to a degree. And women were very much a part of that. You know, there was also a lot of investment into, you know, to building schools and hospitals and roads and bridges and that and the new opportunities that women experienced. I'm just wondering, as we look at this collapse of the government, why those projects and those changes somehow didn't have more currency in limiting the appeal of the Taliban and, and their effectiveness? Well, I think they were uh, – look, all um, aid projects where you try to um, advance a prostrate political economy like Afghanistan's was in 2001 – uh, very rapidly with massive investments. Um, th that is always going to be a rocky road. We've seen it again and again around the world. Corruption is a factor. The inefficiency of outsiders trying to choose what projects to fund is a factor. Afghans have long complained since 2001 that they weren't consulted enough in the design of these development ambitions that the West brought in. Um, and so that is one source of weakness that the the foundations of this kind of reconstruction were flawed. Um, and yet at the same time, I think it's important to recognize today that Afghans uh, believe and appreciate that their country is not what it was in 2001, that it that it does have um, a, an infrastructure um communications infrastructure, physical infrastructure, institutions that that all Afghans uh, want to preserve. And a lot of the message to the Taliban as they have uh, taken over the country this summer has been, okay, uh, we understand you've won the war, but don't tear down the progress that we've made. Time again to talk up my podcast friends over at Unfucking the Republic. They've been building a high quality body of work over the last 10 and a half months now, attracting a fanatical group of supporters and generally making my job easy when it comes to telling you why you should be checking them out. Today, though, I'm making it even easier on myself because they are being featured in the show. Now, some more business savvy types might call this synergy or God forbid, an advertorial. I reject those kinds of terms. I, I even chastised one of our producers on a recent call we had when they suggested that we circle back to something later. Everyone knows that once you start circling back, you're bound to start stepping through your procedures, and before you know it, you're analyzing your core competencies, and I just won't stand for it. So no, this is not an advertorial and even though it might be a little synergistic, I would never be caught unironically using that term. Look, it's simple. I'm telling you to listen to Unfucking the Republic because I believe in them and they paid me to. Well, actually, I think there are a couple outstanding invoices, but I'm telling you to listen because they're probably going to pay me. I'm going to play a clip of them purely because I believe in them and it's high quality, good old fashioned content. And that's what we do here. No financials involved. So have a listen to them right now and then subscribe to hear what else they've been cooking up wherever you get your podcasts by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link in our show notes. Last year, Representative Barbara Lee of California, the only fucking member of Congress to vote against the war in Afghanistan, mind you, introduced House Resolution 1003 with 24 Democratic co-sponsors. While largely symbolic, at least someone is thinking about this shit and introducing it into the public record. Here's a summary of the resolution. This resolution expresses the sense of the House of Representatives that Congress supports 1. Reducing waste at the Department of Defense. 2. Making cuts to the DOD's budget while simultaneously improving support for members of the armed forces. 3. Exercising aggressive oversight over DOD. 4. Eliminating the Overseas Contingency Operations Account. And 5. Reallocating certain defense funds to instead support U.S. diplomacy and domestic programs. The preamble to the resolution says it all. Quote, Whereas Pentagon spending adjusted for inflation since 9-11 has increased 50%, end quote. 
I'll link the PDF in show notes because the rest outlines the waste and mismanagement that comes when you're forced to spend more money than you asked for or you know what to do with. And that's precisely what has happened for the past 20 years. When I was putting together this show, my mind was going in so many directions on fuckers. And when I was reviewing Bernie's out-year projections in the quickie last week, my blood was fucking boiling. Why are we just assuming that these budgets will continue? You know that this kind of non-inflationary spending isn't what tweaks me, even if it's demonstrably offensive, evil, and irresponsible. It's the fact that we've normalized this level of spending on industrial militarization, surveillance, and dirty wars to such an extent that it's not even news when we simultaneously pull out of our longest war and propose a budget that increases spending for the next 10 years. From $300 billion per year to $750 billion and growing, despite the fact that we aren't at war? What are we doing? Are there really only 20-odd members of Congress that see this fucking bullshit? And why aren't they holding a press conference every day or a vigil, a fucking hunger strike, anything? The resolution pointed out a handful of deficiencies to illustrate the point that maybe, just maybe, the DOD has more money than it knows what to do with. Like this one. The Pentagon awarded a $7 million cloud computing contract to a one-person company. Or the Defense Logistics Agency lost track of $800 million in construction projects. How about this? Last year, the Pentagon spent $4.6 million on crab and lobster in an end-of-the-year spree. Or how the Pentagon had no way to track replacement parts for the $1.4 trillion F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. Or how the military budget accounts for more than half of all discretionary spending. It's almost a bad joke at this point. The problem with the Democrats' messaging is that they always have to offset it with what else it could cure. You ever seen a Republican do that? We need to go to war, so we're going to pull money from here to go there. No, they just fucking go to war and spend the money. But the Democrats are like, well, if we take $10 from the war budget, we can put $10 into fucking food stamps. Just fucking put the money where we need it. We have it. Take a fucking economics class. The war machine isn't stupid, by the way. Military contractors are located mostly in Republican districts, which are largely Republican because the districts have been so gerrymandered. And they're funding the political machine to ensure that Republicans maintain control of state legislatures and give themselves an advantage in congressional elections. The answers are right in front of the Democrats right now. But you're witnessing deliberate inaction that ensures nothing will change. We're going to talk about this next week on Fuckers, but the path is incredibly clear. The new Voting Rights Act, H.R. 1 for the People, would take back control of our election system and ensure total participation and reduce the influence of special interests. With the new census data in hand, the Democrats should be working overtime to draw realistic district maps that deliver true representation. The filibuster has to go because the things we need to accomplish won't always get done through reconciliation. And Congress could use this brief window with literally no foreign entanglements to repatriate federal military funds and personnel to deliver on the promise of a Green New Deal, which would convert the domestic industrial military supply chain to create a manufacturing revolution that could help convert the nation's energy and transportation infrastructure to a clean energy economy. If only we approach this with wartime speed and efficiency. But as I've said before, if all you have is a hammer, then the whole world is a nail. The military-industrial complex has only one incentive, and that is to generate conflicts abroad in order to sustain its largesse in the world. Just like the private prison system when we went over that, right? If your clients are prisoners, if you literally call your prisoners customers... You need more of them in order to grow when you are a private company. Well, we have a pretty big privatized military industrial complex at this point that needs more customers. And where do you get them? You start a fucking war. That's just how it works. There is officially now zero reason to maintain a budget this extraordinary. We have the satellite technology to surveil every inch of the planet and target a purported enemy of the state in the backseat of a fucking car thousands of miles away. We see all and know all. So even if you truly believed that there was an imminent threat on U.S. soil, we have the power to snuff it out at a moment's notice. We're not fighting China over nukes and acts of aggression. We're fighting them over patents and intellectual property. We're not fighting the Russians over territory in some country that ends in Stan. We're fighting cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns. And yet, 
we maintain a military apparatus that stands at the ready to deploy troops, carriers, and fighter jets for conflicts that simply don't exist. Unless we make them up. And that's the danger. That's always been the danger. That we will will ourselves into battle and convince our neighbors and allies like Canada and the UK to join us so we can spread the blame and responsibility. The Tyson principle on fuckers is self-revelatory and we have precious little time to act on it. No third party tilting at windmills. There's no time for that. It's up to us to lift up the voices of the Progressive Caucus and vocally support those who are raising these issues and concerns. There are currently 100 out of 535 representatives who have joined the Progressive Caucus. It's not enough. We need numbers and mobilization and pressure on sitting Democrats to align with them on procedural matters such as voting access, ending the filibuster, and controlling the redistricting process. The Republicans will be coming fast and furious for all of us at the midterms, and if you're paying attention to our current leadership, 78-year-old Joe Biden, 70-year-old Chuck Schumer, and 81-year-old Nancy Pelosi, it should be apparent that they're not the ones that are going to make this happen. And if that sounds ageist, it is. Because they're part of yesterday. We need a groundswell of support for the likes of Ayanna Presley, AOC, Elon Omar, and Pramila Jayapal. They need numbers. And that's where we come in. Follow these reps on social media. Let them know that you're here for them. Contact their offices and ask how you can canvass for support in battleground districts that have a chance of going progressive. Stay positive, but get noisy. look at the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the ending of America's longest war with leading anti-war activist Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. For decades, she's been dragged out of congressional hearings, presidential speeches, political conventions by security, as she and others have called for peace. President Biden wants to end evacuations uh, in Afghanistan by the August 31st deadline, uh, but faces pressure to stay longer. Medea, if you can start there um, to talk about your response to the focus of all the media on what is absolutely the chaos and catastrophe at this point in Kabul for so many Afghans. Um, but you have always widened the lens. You, for decades, uh, you have been protesting the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Is this how you think it should end? Of course, we didn't want it to end like this, and there should have been better planning in terms of getting people out of the country. Uh, but we were very clear we never wanted the U.S. to go in to begin with, and every single year we kept saying, uh, get out. It was fascinating listening to Bilal and him talking about all of the corruption inside Afghanistan. And I just kept thinking of this cash cow that has been the war in Afghanistan that we have been fighting against all these years. Uh, we also got dragged out of meetings of shareholder from uh, Halliburton to uh, General Dynamics to think of all the companies that profited from this war and how uh, they have been the ones who have kept the war going by uh, uh, putting their money into lobby groups. You just look at General Dynamics, Boeing, Raytheon, uh, and uh, they their spending of $34 million in this year alone on lobbying our government. Uh, we have to find a way, Amy, that we reflect on what happened over these 20 years and look at these contractors uh, that provide all of the logistics and have privatized the U.S. military. Uh, in fact, we have had more U.S. contractors in Afghanistan at many times during these 20 years than U.S. soldiers. Uh, so I think there's a lot of reckoning to be done, and I hope that we will be able, once this phase is over, which is chaotic and horrific, uh, we will be able to look at who actually profited, where did all this money go, why did it happen, and how are we going to stop it from happening again? So 
Afghanistan has something like a trillion dollars' worth of minerals, and there is a global fight now to for countries to position themselves. You have been warning about the U.S. beefing up their anti-China uh, rhetoric. Um, something that's not getting a lot of attention right now is Vice President Harris is on a uh, South Asian trip. She was just in Singapore. Uh, then she flew to Vietnam. Uh, she has warned about China in the South China Sea. Um, can you talk about um, the U.S.-China brinksmanship that's going on right now? The tragedy is that the U.S. leaving Afghanistan for the Biden administration is a chance to focus on uh, what they call our main adversary, which is China. It justifies this continual gargantuan Pentagon budget that eats up so much of our resources. Uh, and it is a delusional idea that we uh, should be focusing on China as an enemy. It's a country of over a billion people. It's a nuclear country, um, especially at a time when we need to work with China to deal with issues like the climate, like the pandemic, uh, like global poverty. Uh, China is going into Afghanistan and will work with the new Afghan government to build up the infrastructure. Well, where is all that infrastructure uh, that the U.S. didn't do for the last 20 years? Why have they left Afghanistan, having been occupied by one of the richest countries in the world, us, the United States, uh, it, to be one of the most impoverished countries in the world? Uh, the U.S. should actually learn from China that instead of going into countries with uh, bombs and bullets, bullets, it should go into countries to figure out how to help uh, build the infrastructure and build the economy that would be a win-win situation. What do you feel the U.S. owes to the people of Afghanistan? We feel that the U.S. owes a tremendous responsibility, not only for getting the Afghans out, as we're trying to do now, but for the millions of Afghans who are left behind in terrible, dire situations from this 20 years of war. Uh, you had a great program on yesterday, uh, Amy, about the humanitarian crisis. Well, we feel like the U.S. is now uh, going to use its economic warfare against Afghanistan to increase that humanitarian crisis by withholding $9 billion that belongs to Afghanistan in U.S. banks, uh, by working with other countries in Europe and uh, the IMF to withhold funding. Uh, we don't have to be friends with the Taliban, but we can't be the enemies either because the victims will be the Afghan people. We need to let go of their funds. We need to provide generous humanitarian support. In fact, the U.S. should fund the entire $350 million urgent request made by the UNHCR, the refugee agency, because that's equivalent to just one and a half days of war in Afghanistan. So we owe a lot to the people whose lives that we have helped destroy over these last 20 years. As the battles rage in Congress over um, spending—I mean, you've got the massive infrastructure bill that the House just passed, the framework of $3.5 trillion—but um, there's also the Pentagon budget. Can you end there by talking about what you think needs to happen and the lessons of Afghanistan? This is exactly where we need to go as a people in the United States to say that this epic failure in Afghanistan shows us that militarism is not the right way to respond to problems, that we have to cut the Pentagon budget in half, like Barbara Lee has suggested, freeing up $350 billion to be used to confront the real crisis of climate, of poverty, uh, the infrastructure that we need, and to help countries around the world and our own countries to deal with the pandemic and to get us a decent health care system. And I encourage all of the supporters of Democracy Now! to join us in this call to say to all our members of Congress and to the White House, cut the military budget in half. That is the most responsible way to respond to this tragedy of 20 years of colossal failure in Afghanistan.
We've just heard clips today starting with The Intercept sharing first-person reporting on the American withdrawal. Counterspin discussed the big picture of ending the war too late and the ongoing responsibilities we have to the Afghan people. The Brian Lehrer Show analyzed Biden's decisions to end the war and the impact of the policy left behind by Trump. The Intercept also looked at Biden's decisions to ultimately pull the Band-Aid off. Fresh Air discussed the rights of women and the infrastructure that has been built in Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Unnaffing the Republic looked at the Pentagon budget, and Democracy Now! explained the cost and consequences of military contractors profiting from war. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Fresh Air discussing how the Taliban is and isn't different from the last time they were in power 20 years ago. Democracy Now! reported on the suicide bombing of the Kabul airport, and the Majority Report discussed the ways in which the U.S. tends to withdraw from conflict in name only, while keeping military in place or nearby conflict zones in perpetuity. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Bud from Idaho. I heard your podcast on bipartisanship the other day. It's real good, real good, real informative. Your comments at the end mentioned term limits. That's always something as a knee jerk that I thought was a great idea, although I do have some slight uh, reservations about it. One of my friends was dead set against it. He says it's not uh, democratic. One could argue it's just semantics. And basically what he meant by that was that if you have someone who's been in for a few terms who you like and who has been doing well, it's unfortunate that you no longer have him to select from. And I guess I would argue also that constant turnover would mean uh, inexperienced people, which could be an issue. My biggest issue with it is just how it's structured. Like I say, I tend to lean towards it, but I do worry that the revolving doors between government and corporations will begin to spin fast enough to uh, substitute as a fan. Uh, I just had this picture in my mind of someone being a senator for six years and then whatever committee they were on getting a job maybe even a no-show job at their chosen industry and then show up again some years later to be in a powerful place in the senate again so i guess my main concern is you know if, if we had term limits that's probably fine but does that mean they could never be in that position again or does it just mean that they would couldn't hold consecutive terms that's what i'm getting after so term limits not a bad idea but it must be thought out if we were to enact something like that i have a hunch it'd be pretty hard to get through because people like holding those positions of power for a long time and it's hard to conceive that they might change the rules so that they themselves won't hold power Keep doing what you're doing. Stay awesome. Thanks. Hey, Jay, this is Jeff from the mountains of California. Really been enjoying your shows lately. I just wanted to piggyback on what you responded to the environmental questions as far as individual actions and all that. I absolutely agree. This is so far past individual actions. This is a a collective shift <laughs> in how we view the world. Um, one thing that's often lost, I think, in left-wing responses is the sacredness of the earth. And how many times do you hear in environmental discussions and such, we need to give thanks to the earth. We need to honor the earth. When you come to a stream, do you thank the water, et cetera, et cetera. And Obviously, this is heavily influenced by native philosophies, and that's where we have to be. This is so far past recycling. I remember Winona LaDuke saying that one time at a speech I saw. She's just, this is so far past that. This is about ceremony and getting back to this and, and learning it in the first place. And I just wanted to throw that in there. I think it's really crucial for lefties to start thinking about that and saying it openly at every possible opportunity. This is about ceremony and giving thanks. 
Right on. Thank you, Jay. Thanks to those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, quite candidly, we have not been getting a lot of voicemails recently. This has been an ongoing topic of occasional discussion over the last few years, you know, Ten years ago, I'd have a half dozen calls per episode. Now, uh, not so much. I think people just don't like using the phone anymore. Maybe some other reasons, too. And so to have two good calls to respond to, it's it's an embarrassment of riches. So first, Bud on term limits. I feel sort of similarly, like it's one of those issues that instinctually feels like a good idea, but he brings up very important points that need to be addressed. Number one, you couldn't possibly have term limits without also having very strong rules against the revolving door issue, politicians becoming lobbyists and maybe coming back and meeting politicians again. So the way those rules are structured is going to be really impactful for how that policy actually plays out. And then the second is about experience versus the the threat of inexperience. Which would make me tend towards believing that if term limits are going to be part of the system, that's probably okay, but they probably shouldn't be too restrictive. Just throwing it out there, I haven't looked up anyone's proposals or anything, but five terms in the House or three terms in the Senate. So in the House, that would be 10 years of service. In the Senate, you know, you could say two terms, that would be 12 years. You know, Senate's a little different. Maybe letting them have 18 is appropriate. Maybe it's too long. I don't know. Uh, This is not my area of expertise. But the point being, you probably don't want Congress run by a bunch of amateurs. And again, speculating sort of wildly, but based on a lot of experience and and a pretty strong understanding of how these kinds of things work. My guess, knowing that term limits is an issue that conservative-leaning political people gravitate towards a lot and talk about a lot, makes me think that they are sort of being catered to, that they're being encouraged to believe in that policy. And the way this very often works is that there is you know, some sort of power structure involved helping encourage belief systems across the board, but particularly among conservatives, that that uh, happens quite a lot. And so it feels to me like powerful corporate interests may very well be pushing the idea of term limits because they know that it sounds appealing, just instinctually it sounds appealing, but they know that one of the knock-on effects of having term limits would be a greater number of inexperienced legislators. And and the way this could benefit them could happen a couple different ways. Maybe just legislators being more inexperienced would make them easier to lobby, easier to cajole into the way of thinking that the corporations want, possibly. More likely, though, I think it would just help create a faster-moving pipeline of new politicians. And it's not really so much when politicians are already in office that corporations are able to get in and sort of purchase those politicians. I mean, th- there are some ways. The the promising jobs after the fact, that's a big one. But one of the best ways to control politicians is just to control which ones manage to get elected. So you find the politicians that are most in your corner already as a corporate interest, fund their campaigns, their primary campaigns and their general campaigns before they've won office, and then they win and they are going to support you and your corporate interests without you even having to spend lots of money lobbying them because they just actually believe in what you believe in. So that's the best, most effective way, I think. And if you have term limits... 
that creates more churn in Congress, and more churn in Congress means more opportunities to get new, fresh blood candidates in who the corporations can sort of hand pick and fund their campaigns to get them into office, knowing that they will support the corporate interest. So those are some thoughts on term limits, why people may be in favor of them, and and especially why it's being pushed as a good reform measure. Everyone sort of knows that we need reforms, but some reforms are a lot more corporate-friendly than others, and and term limits seems like it is probably one of those. But I'd be open to hearing arguments from the other side as well. Secondly, I thought Jeff's voicemail was really interesting, and I don't want to respond to it too much because I just have a bit of a follow-up question. I want to know how we turn the ceremony mentality that Jeff was talking about into public policy. Because Jeff agrees, as he said, that we're way beyond individual actions. We need to get deep into structural, society-wide change. And then he talks about it in terms of, you know, being grateful and thankful to the earth and having a sort of ceremony mindset. And so I think, okay, great. What public policy is that? (laughs) How do we turn that mindset into policy or how do we get people to have that mindset so that they create better policy that's in line with that way of thinking? Members who will be hearing a bonus episode that we've recorded, but I haven't quite gotten edited and, and published yet, they will be hearing my theory, not, not on this in particular, uh, because this voicemail came in after we recorded, but there's one idea I have about how to get people into a ceremony mindset. The ethics of it's dubious, but members tune into the bonus show to uh, to hear what that's going to be. I, th- I think you'll know what I'm talking about. And then the, the last thing I'll just say in response to Jeff's message, in addition to asking for more of his thoughts on that, is it's really important to know your audience, right? So I don't personally speak in terms of ceremonies and thanking the land and all that, but that resonates with me. I'm, I'm on board with that. I, I don't scoff at that idea. It doesn't, you know, make me laugh under my breath that, oh, isn't that silly or quaint? None of that. Like that, that really does resonate with me, but it's not going to for a lot of people. And so when Jeff says, this is what progressives need to start saying loudly and more boldly, Yes and no. I, you know, it, it's going to resonate really well with some people, and it's going to really, really, really turn some other people off. And that is just the nature of it. And I'm a big believer in meeting people where they are, not as a moderating, uh, let's not try to make too much progress because we might scare people sort of way, but in a, if you try to overstep where people are ready to go, especially with terminology and how you frame things, then you're going to scare them away more than attract them in. And so for a certain segment of progressives, talking about ceremonies is going to be not just adequate, but great. For other people, you're going to be better off talking about how using resources damages the environment using resources also costs money. So why are you spending extra money to do extra harm? Let's save money and do less harm to the environment. Like for for some people, that kind of way of thinking is just going to resonate more. So I, I would just argue, know your audience and speak to them. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, Activism 
segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support or from right inside the Apple Podcast app, if that's your style. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, which is where I also talk about uh, how you might be able to get people into a ceremony mindset. Not in those words, but... You'll know what I mean. And in addition, there is also bonus content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. So you get all of that just for signing up for a membership. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com.